the passage we'll be hearing from today is from Proverbs 18, verse 10, and 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 8 through 11. And if you have a Bible with you today, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to uh, grab one of the ones that's located in the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible that you call your own, consider that a gift from us, uh, from us to you. Again, we're going to be reading from Proverbs 18, verse 10, and 2 Corinthians verses 1, 8 through 11. Once you, uh, once you arrive there, would you mind please standing for the reading of God's word? Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 2 Corinthians 1.8-11 says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. I have the handheld mic because my other words acting up at the other gathering, so I'm going to do my best to uh, not be too handsy. Good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you here. <laughs> some of you caught that, some of you didn't, and I heard like a couple delayed laughs. Um, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, we're so glad that you decided to join us and make us a part of your week, and uh, hopefully someone's grabbed you, shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here as a church. Uh, Like Ty said, we're in the middle of a sermon series through the Psalms and the Proverbs called uh, From the Pasture to the Palace, and we've been talking about emotions and the role that emotions play in our lives, but also we've been talking about uh, just the the two different kind of ditches on both sides of the road, if you will, about emotions. One where one of those is that we, uh, we engage with emotions by being totally repressive, of them because we're afraid of what might come out if we actually feel and express what we feel in our everyday lives. And on the other side, we're totally acceptant and expect everyone else to be acceptant of our emotions and how we engage with them. And that what we've been discussing is how the Bible offers us a third way. And that third way being that God not only invites us, but encourages us to bring our hurts, fears, anxieties, shame, discouragement, despair to him uh, and to engage him over those things but that also the Lord then, by his grace, helps us to regulate and see truth so that we don't become slaves to our emotions. Because if you haven't experienced this yet, I, I imagine that you will, Your, our emotions have led us to places where we never thought we would go, right? Anybody else got there? Like if you're, if you're a married couple, you can say amen. You've said, there you go. You have said things you wish you didn't say. Uh, you've, you've done things you wish you didn't do. Uh, and then also, if you have kids, you've probably seen them when their moments of anger, frustration, and rage, no matter how much Daniel Tiger they watched, they did things they shouldn't do, right? Daniel Tiger always tells kids to like, you know, deal with their emotions in a specific way. It doesn't matter how much of that they watch. They can do things they ought not do based on the anger they experience or the frustration or uh, you're withholding from them, right? And so we know we don't need to just be carte blanche about our acceptance, and the Lord offers us a different way. And so this morning, I'm doing part two, because we've not only been talking through the Psalms, where the writers like David and others discuss uh, emotions and how they engage with God, but we've been talking through the Proverbs. Uh, 
and the wisdom of Solomon, David's son, on how boots on the ground we ought to deal with our emotions. So I'm kind of doing part two. If you haven't listened to part one, uh, Eric preached last week about the topic of despair. And he discussed despair through the Psalms and how the writers of the Psalms engaged with despair. And, and I wanted to briefly, in case you guys weren't here last week, maybe do a little bit of a recap and definition. Of what, what do we mean when we talk about despair? And despair, because if we're honest, some of us maybe who aren't experiencing despair, you hear that that's the topic and you're already ready to push the mute button, right? You're like, listen, I've been in despair. I'm not interested in going there again, so let's not listen closely to this one, right? Uh, but I think if we define it rightly, you might find yourself here. Uh, despair is not just when something goes wrong in your life and the difficult emotions that you experience there. It's when so many things have gone wrong regularly that you struggle to hope that anything could go right. Does that make sense? It's not just, hey, I experienced despair because something didn't go my way. It's that over and over and over again, it seems as though the world is continuing to remind you that it's never going to go your way and that you have no reason to hope that it would. And it might be one circumstance that just continually over and over it happens again and again with, or it might be multiple. But nonetheless, despair, to put it another way, is the absence of hope. It's when we refuse to hope again because we don't want to be hurt again. Or you might have heard it like this. It's like looking up to see the bottom is how it feels, you know, in your life. Like I'm not at the bottom, at the rock bottom. It's like I'm looking up to see the bottom. I'm at a really rough place. Uh, My wife is, uh, her and a group of guys, Brendan and some others, they do uh, country music. And I thought when I was writing this last night, they were in a show. And I thought, most country music is written from despair. Uh, either that or just great joy mixed with alcohol. You know, that's basically country music in a nutshell, right? Um, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about despair, that there's a push and a pull to despair. The push of despair is this. When something goes wrong and you feel yourself spiraling, do something quick and fix it. So guys, gals, this is when the bank account doesn't look right. I got to do something quickly in order to fix that because I know what comes when the bank account is low. When things in your marriage aren't going the way that you want them to, you got to do something quick to fix it. Fix the marriage. Fix our relationship. Fix my child. Fix my job. Fix my circumstance. So we get into this frenetic activity to try to change that which is going awry. That's one way that despair pushes us. But there's also a pull of despair. And the pull of despair is you start experiencing that spiral downward where you don't feel like you're very hopeful about the future. So you pull away from everyone. You pull away into isolation. You pull away, and in some cases, into depression. And the reason for that is because on one end where you're trying to preserve what you have and maybe change it, uh, on the other end, you're trying to make sure that you don't put yourself in danger again. Does that make sense? When you pull away into isolation, you're saying, I don't want to put myself in a dangerous situation where I might fall again. It's why, it's why sometimes people fall into not trying because they're just so afraid that they might fail. And they don't even want to try because they know what it feels like to fail. And so this is the push-pull that we find ourselves in. Now, Eric mentioned this last week, and I think it's important that I mention it again. What's missing in both of those responses to despair? The answer is Lament. And and lament is not something that we talk about very often, but in the Bible, uh, over and over and over again, writers like David, they find themselves lamenting over that which has gone wrong, crying out to God. Eric said last week that suffering and hardship is meant to lead us to cry out to God. So check this out, where on one end of the spectrum, the push of despair leads you to say, what do I need to do to fix this? On the other end of the spectrum, the pull 
of despair makes you think, what can I do? Nothing can change. But the third option is to lament, which is to say, how long, O Lord, will you allow this to happen? Please step in and change it. It's where we cry out to God about what is and what ought to be. And how do we know what is and what ought to be in the relation between those? We only know that because the scriptures tell us that God created a good world, that he created things in shalom, he created things in peace, he created things in harmony. And now because we live in a broken world, we realize this is unjust and this is just and these things should not be. And then we cry out to God and lament over it. Now, what I really want to focus on this morning, because Eric talked about that last week, is what do you do then? What, what do you do then? after that. Because can we agree that our life should not just be a constant season of lament? Anybody okay with that? All right, some of you have friends that are that, right? The constant season of lament friend. You don't want to call them your friend because that's depressing enough, right? It's just like always a cloud's following them. They're always Eeyore. It's always dark. It's always cloudy. It's always raining. It's always difficult. It's always a struggle, you know? And that's tough to be around that person, right? Because here's the thing. Uh, Despair not only leads people to depression, it leads people to cynicism. And you might not know you're a cynic because I'll tell you, cynicism is so deceitful. But bottom line, a cynic is, it's very simple. You're never wrong and God is never right when you're a cynic. By that I mean, when something good happens in your life, you'll turn to your wife, your spouse, your husband, whatever, and say, yeah, it might be good now, but just give it time, it's gonna get bad. Now here's why you're never wrong, because in a fallen world, the Bible tells us, give it time, that's true. Because why? Because you live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. So if you just give it enough time, something's going to happen. And so the cynic says, see, I told you so. Can never truly celebrate, can never truly worship, can never truly have joy, because they're always saying, just give it enough time and something's going to go wrong. And the cynic is despairing. They just don't, they're unwilling to admit that. The cynic has no hope, just like the depressed, the, the depressed person has no hope in that moment, but they want to distance themselves from them, and they do it with this sim- these three simple words, you know, just being real. You ever heard somebody say that to you? Like, man, why are you always such a downer? I'm just being real. Just being honest. And just being honest is a way to say, I'm just, I'm just not willing to cope. <laughs> I'm not willing to cope with the fact that I really am despairing, so I'll just be a cynic easier to be a cynic. But the Bible calls us to something else. And here's what I want to do before I pray. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, you're going to think that maybe he's a cynic, maybe he's a Debbie Downer, but listen to what he says. There's more wisdom in the house of mourning than there is in the house of mirth. There's more wisdom to be had in the house of mourning than the house of mirth. Or in other words, Solomon looked out at the world and said, you can glean a lot of wisdom at funerals that you don't get at weddings. Now, that sounds really dark. But what is he really getting at? That when we, when we are approached with or when suffering knocks on our door, that there's an opportunity for us to see God's hand supernaturally in a way that joys, triumphs, and victories just don't offer. Not that joys, triumphs, and victories shouldn't be embraced, but that there's a way that we can leverage as believers the hardship that will lead to something deep, meaningful, and spiritually supernatural, or we can avoid it, waste it, right? So what I want to pray is, practically, God, how do we not waste it? Just from the word, teach us how do we not waste it when we have those moments. And then for those of you who, again, aren't in that season, I want to pray that God would use you, that you might be able to minister in your times of great joy to those that are around you, okay? So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for us.
Father, I confess to you my tendency is um, not to lean in to you in times of hardship, but to try to fix it. I want to, I love trying to find an end around to hardship. And Lord, I just thank you that you're unwilling sometimes to let me do that so that I might know you. And so Holy Spirit, now would you open our eyes to your word. Shape us, mold us, encourage us. Where it seems like from a worldly perspective, there are those in this room who should have nothing but sorrow in their hearts. I ask that you would replace it with joy. Where there are marriages in this room, Lord, that look like they should have no hope, I pray that you would give abundant hope and belief that you are going to deliver them, just like Paul said in the word. God, do your work of rescuing, helping, aiding, and stand forth from your word as a glorious savior. And let us look to you for salvation in our time of trouble. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I want to jump back and forth from the story of Paul into Proverbs. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 8 through 11, Paul says this. And, and this is Paul writing a second letter to the church at Corinth. And the theme here is uh, comfort in the midst of hardship, comfort in the midst of suffering. Paul is telling the church at Corinth that he has gone through great difficulty and hardship in his ministry, and he doesn't want to shy away from that. Check out verse number eight. He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's intense. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So a couple things here. First, Paul the Apostle is laying out a framework that you and I need to know and embrace. Christianity is not and has never meant, it was never meant to be a faith that we tell others and encourage others and make disciples that believe that when you start following Jesus, everything's gonna be good from then on. You'll never suffer, you'll never struggle, right? I'll tell you that you could turn on TV and you'll have people that tell you that. I just wanna help you as a pastor say that's a lie. It's a lie that's unhelpful, it's a lie that's damaging, it's a lie that has turned many people away from God and not towards God because here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Then he said, but take heart or don't despair, I've overcome the world. So here's what the truth is. We will have struggles. These are inevitable to the Christian. And in fact, there's going to be times where we uniquely struggle because of our faith, but that in and through that, God's going to bring life and resurrection. That's important to believe. And I joked with the 9 a.m. service. I said, how do we know this is true? Because Jesus didn't exactly have the most prosperous earthly life. Can we agree? Like he didn't have a, a nice chariot with spinner rims. That didn't happen. He didn't have a jet that said God's been good to Yeshua on it, that he flew and did his missionary work. That didn't happen. That followed through with Paul the Apostle. He didn't have any of that. It's not like Paul had nice new Nike kicks when he showed up to Spain to bring the gospel. He wasn't hip. He, wasn't, he didn't have an Instagram account with tons of followers. Paul's ministry, he said this, I'm, I am counted as the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. That was Paul. So it's important that we understand this so that we know the treasure of being a Christian is not that God's gonna make our lives all better on this side, it's that we get Christ. And in having Christ, we have everything we ever need. And 
what if, as you, as you grow and as you mature, what you'll realize, it's everything you really want. You just don't know that you want it. Everything that you want in earthly things are really just the shallow shadow of the substance of Christ. You just, it, it takes time for us to really understand and know that, right? Okay, so that's initial from what Paul's saying. But what is Paul also saying here? Well, Eric mentioned last, last week that one of, the, one of the reasons for suffering is that when Christians suffer and they embrace Christ, they stand out as a glorious light to a dark world. Like what makes us unique is not that we don't suffer, it's that when we suffer, we have an anchor in Christ and that we can be hopeful in the midst of the hardship. Like Eric said, whenever things happen to you, that you have a bright face on, not because it didn't affect you, but because you know you have Christ and in Christ, it's going to be okay. And I was listening to Eric's sermon on podcast, and I thought, few people exhibit that like that man does. Like a few weeks ago, he and his wife, they got robbed. Someone broke in their house. They stole their adoption money, stole Chelsea's camera, stole lots of things from them. And when you talk to Eric, he'd say, he, you know, he was visibly like, man, that really stinks. And he wasn't unwilling to lament. But in his heart of hearts, like, it's going to be okay. God's good. Like, man, I would love to feel that way. I'd be like, where is he? Do I have a gun? Is it loaded? We have cameras. You know, I have cameras at my house. I'd be going back through the footage. Like, what kind of haircut does he have? I'm imagining it's a man too, right? Sexist. Okay, anyway, who is this and what, what, you know, where can I find them? Not, not Eric. You know, he just trusts Jesus, loves Jesus. It's going to be okay. Ultimately, it's just temporary things. And what he was saying is not something that he hasn't modeled. What he's saying is it's that response that a watching world says, that's, that's not normal. That's different. That's unique. Or in the New Testament, Paul said it, or the writer of Hebrews said, that the Christians would joyfully receive the plundering of their property. That's weird. <laughs> An example of that is the uh, famous book, play, musical, lots of things, Les Mis, right? It's where the, the guy steals from the, the cardinal of, of the church, right? Steals a bunch of stuff in the night. The police show up. They catch him with all this. They bring him back and say, bring him to the bishop. They say, here. We're going to kill this guy, right? You're going to put him on trial. He says, oh, no, 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 no. I gave him all that stuff, and I'm upset at you. You, you forgot all the things that I was going to give you. You left some of it. And he starts giving the thief more of the goods of the church. And the police know what he's doing, and the police, with a sense of justice, are angry. Why is he doing this? Why is he letting him off the hook, right? It's this, in the midst of suffering, this guy understood that he can be the light of Christ and that he overwhelmingly, or as Jesus says, when a man steals and wants one of your tunics, give him your other one. When a man says, go with me a mile, give him a second mile. Why did Jesus say that? Because that exhibits the gospel. That's one reason for suffering. But Paul goes on and says there's a second reason for suffering. Number two is we experience hardship so that we would rely on God and not ourselves. That's what he said. He said, we experience real tough times in Asia so that we wouldn't rely on ourselves, we rely on God. And friends, you and I need that reminder too, right? That sounds sadistic, but, but that's a gracious God that does that. God taking something evil, sinful suffering, and turning it for something good, sanctification and hope. Because if we turn anywhere else, that's only going to lead to death. So he brings us back to himself through these things that are inevitably coming in a broken world. Now, the difficulty here is that we tend to strive and struggle when we, when we face up against suffering. We try to squirm our way frenetic activity. I like watching this guy named Bear Grylls. You guys ever watch Bear Grylls? I like watching his stuff. They drop him off in the world's worst places, and he just tries, you know, to, all he has is like a paper clip and a rubber band, and he gets out of it. It's like a MacGyver of the wilderness. You know what I'm talking about? 
I really enjoy watching his stuff. I just most recently watched one where he's in the middle of a desert and he sees quicksand. And he says, you know, this is the quicksand. This is what would happen if you're here. Saying, you know, usually you need to be able to identify this so that you can avoid it altogether. But since I'm here, and he just jumps in it, jumps in the quicksand in the middle of the desert. And I'm like, I don't know why this guy does this stuff. You know, I also think about the cameraman. Like, does he just have like Cheetos, you know, because he's not doing what he's doing. He's just eating. Like, look at this, you know, which filming it. But Bear Grylls said something that I knew and then something that I didn't know. On one hand, the thing that I knew, and most of you know this too, if you struggle against quicksand, you sink faster. Yeah, everybody know that? Like if you try, like, and most people, they, they kind of freak out when they get in quicksand, like we would, right? They start to kind of struggle, and it's that frenetic activity that actually makes them sink. But he said something that I didn't know. And the thing that I didn't know is that most people actually die by dehydration and just scorching in the sun because once they realize they're sinking faster, they just sit still. And they just stay there and die. And so what I realized is there's actually a ditch on both sides of the road. It's not that when you're in quicksand, you should not move altogether. It's that you have to have these purposeful, meaningful movements towards safety. And it's the only way that you can get out of quicksand. Because if you just stay, he actually said at one point, reaching out and, and having someone pull you out, at least at first, you're more likely to pull them in. So first you have to have these purposeful, meaningful movements that are not frenetic, not freaking out, out of trouble. And I thought about that. And I thought about how the Bible encourages us to rest in Christ, but that that resting in Christ in the midst of our despair does not mean inactivity and vegetation. Like many of us, when we think about I need to rest, we think like Netflix, potato chips, alone, binging, where it has to ask you if you're still watching in shame, and then you say yes, right? And that's what we think about when we think about rest. But the Bible actually calls us to something else. The Bible says that we don't need to be self-reliant, but on the flip side, that we don't need to be inactive. Like the self-reliance, I think, manifests itself most prevalently in our inability to really engage with community with our despair. I want to read Proverbs chapter 18, verse number one. This is Solomon talking about our tendency to isolate, and it should be kicked up behind me. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. Or in other words, it's a dumb move to isolate yourself. There is sound judgment or smart move, and then there's what you're doing when we isolate ourselves because of despair. This is our tendency. And there's nothing that screams self-reliance like that person who doesn't feel like they need community. You can kid yourself all day long about your dependence on God, but your dependence on God is most prevalently proved by your commitment to the people of God. Not just being served by them, but being willing to serve them. Or a few things. So like your willingness to be engaged in a a group of, in a community of people where you not only pray for others in their moment of need, but you expect them and long for them to pray for you. You not only give generously, but you're receiving that generosity. You're not only loving the unlovely, but check it out, and you need to hear this, when you're unlovely, and you are, that you get to experience that loving care of a community who looks at you in your unloveliness and says, I still love you. See, Solomon says we don't want that, therefore we pull away from that, but that it's actually, forgive me for the word, stupid. It's dumb. Because that self-reliance leads to death. Now on the flip side, Paul says that there's 
also a rest, resting in Christ that we ought to be engaging in. So not just this active pursuit towards community, but there's this resting in the finished work of Jesus that we need to be thinking about. So real quick, if you, if you can, like make a right-hand turn in your Bible uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. Now, Paul, as he's engaging with this idea of suffering and, and, and comfort and God, God being a, a God of all comfort and suffering, he then leads into uh, chapter number four where he gives us this analogy of the, the temporary and the eternal, the things that are seen and the things that are unseen. Watch what he says here, starting in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. If you guys want to underline that, what is despair? Losing heart. Despair is losing heart. This is why Jesus often looks at his disciples and says, take heart. Or in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world, right? So we do not lose heart. Well, how does Paul not lose heart? Well, one, we know, and we've already mentioned it, he calls out to the Corinthians and says, hey, I've been suffering and I need your prayers. That's verse 11. God's gonna deliver us, but you need to pray. So those things are together, right? We can't change them. Verse 10, God's going to deliver us. Verse 11, you need to pray so he'll deliver us. Those are both true. But then he goes on and says, but we don't lose heart. Why? Because of this truth, starting in the back half of verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So I joke with the nine about this. Those things, one is universally true, and the second is true for those who are in Christ. If you're here the first one is universally true. Your body's breaking down. For all the young people, it's like at age, there's a tipping point, and it's, everything just starts going downhill. I wish it, did, it wasn't true, right? It's like guys where you, used to, where you used to laugh at the commercials for hair, like hair loss products. Now you're like writing websites down. I gotta think about that, you know? Like you used to make jokes about Rogaine with your dad, and then now here you are. I remember the first time I like looked in the mirror and I, I kind of like tipped my head down. It's like, what is happening? <laughs> it's just like everything starts to go. I remember waking up for the first time and like I was sore, but I hadn't worked out. Like, what? I, I walked in there. I was like, more my, my hip hurts. It's like, what'd you do? <laughs> Sleep? I don't know. I lived. I drank water. I don't know what to tell you. It just, everything just starts to deteriorate over time. It's like, I think I have a spinal contusion. What'd you do? Mowed the lawn, and we have a riding lawnmower. So Paul's just pointing out something that's just universally true. And if you're really young right now, I thank God for your youth and vitality. Please come clean the church. But you're headed somewhere, friends. And that is where you realize just things are not, they're all deteriorating. It all starts going downhill. Can't eat what you used to want to eat anymore. It's like you used to just be able to, I eat a whole pizza. And I eat a whole pizza. It's heartburn for days, weeks. Can't do that. But then Paul says something that's not universally true. But that for the Christian, it's the thing we should cling to in the midst of hardship and suffering that brings us the most hope. He says our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Well, theologically, what does that mean? That means that when you and I experience difficulties in our marriage, in our relationships, in our friendships, at our job, with our finances, with our government, with our country, with our parents, with our in-laws, leave a pause there, that God's renewing you in and through that day by day. 
Paul had a theology that said every bad thing and every good thing is shaping with the great physician. He is shaping us like physical therapy, but in our soul to make us more like Jesus and that we're being renewed. That's a promise to the Christian. Then he goes on. Watch this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's what Paul did. He took all of his suffering, which we don't know if he's specifically talking about in in 2 Corinthians, these things, but let me name a few the Bible talks about. Paul had been beaten three times with 39 lashes with what we imagine is the cat of nine tails like Jesus was whipped with three times. He was shipwrecked out at sea while he was imprisoned with a bunch of other criminals for preaching the gospel. Paul was stoned, and I don't mean that as maybe you're thinking. He was, they threw rocks at him to the point of death and then drug him out of the city and left him for dead for preaching the gospel. He was wrongly, wrongfully imprisoned in Philippi and fastened to the stocks after they whipped him with bleeding hands back, everything. Paul had been adrift at sea. Paul had been There were mobs and riots that were created in order to discredit and imprison and ultimately kill Paul. There were assassinations, attempts on his life, and there were conspiracies of men that would get together. There were a group of Jews that got together and said, we won't eat until we kill him. Paul lumps all of this suffering together, coupled with all the things that we don't know about Paul's life, right? Like how many of you ever wrestled with Paul saying, I had a thorn in the flesh that I asked God to take away, and three times he said no? And we don't know what that is. But if, if, if what I just said was all the things that happened to Paul, and yet he named this thing as the one thing that he couldn't, he just wanted it to go away, I imagine it's deep. And, he, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul takes all of this mess, all this hardship, all this hurt, and then he stamps it with this, light momentary affliction. It's like a love-hate with him, isn't it? Because, I mean, you can get mad all you want, but if you try to measure up, he's going to say, well, I mean, yeah, I went through that or worse. He even tells the Hebrew church, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's another way of saying, like, toughen up, baby. I have scars, real ones, right? Think about what he's saying, light, momentary affliction. And then he goes on and he compares it to what? Eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us. Paul says, if we are to engage with despair in the way in which God has offered us, which is the way of peace and life and hope, we have to exchange our temporary eyes and we have to put on eternal glasses. We have to put on a lens that sees through the eternal Or one way to think about your rest versus God's rest for you is your rest is microscopic. God's rest is telescopic. When you rest, all of your mind, how many of you have ever experienced this? When I I say you, let me say me. I'll just say it as my experience and you can just see if you you relate to me. When I rest like I want to rest, whether it be Netflix or some like one of the thousand app games that you play that I don't know why you play them, all right? But we do. However I want to rest, when I rest like that, I find myself meditating on, ruminating on all of the difficulties that are happening to me, and my life gets smaller and smaller and smaller as I, as I really just consider my own hardships. What's happening, what's not happening. The people that frustrate me, the people that supposedly love me or don't, whatever it may be, and I just kind of, 
think on that. And I'll tell you what it does to me. I don't know if it does it to you, but ultimately it shrinks my heart to this point where I've, I've, I've basically boiled down all of life to what's happening to me and I'm further discouraged. Then there's the offer of Christ's rest, which is telescopic, where Paul gives us eternal glasses and says, think about past, present, and future, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God has promised to do. So for me, when I think about myself, I think about all that I have done that I am ashamed of, all that is presently happening to me that I am frustrated with, and therefore I have no hope for the future being different. That's called despair. Or the rest of Christ is, look at what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Where you sit right now, the offer stands, whether Christian or non-Christian, that you can believe upon the name of Jesus and all shame, guilt, condemnation of your sinful past is gone. And, check this out, and the, things, the sinful things that have happened to you, you don't have to carry any longer. Now, I'm not trying to pretend as though they won't affect you because I know many of you still wrestle with that stuff today. Here's what I can promise you, though, is that that dirtiness that you feel about the things that have happened to you, you don't have to continue to carry. That's what the doctrine of expiation is. It's that God takes those dirty feelings of sinful things that happened to you and he sends them away into the wilderness. Or like the Psalms say, it says he puts it into a sea of forgetfulness. Not just for him, but for you. All right? That in Christ, we have that offered to us about our past. Then there's our present. That right now, day by day, good things and bad things, when you eat a great bite of steak, if you're a vegetarian, then like tofu, whatever you eat, bless you, and it tastes, what, it tastes great, that hopefully that kicks back up for you to know that you're experiencing just a fraction of what it's going to be like one day when we eat the marriage supper of the lamb all together what it should do is start to stir your affections that what we experience as joy on this side is only a light, slight, momentary thing. Oh, oh, check this out. And then so are the hardships, though. Like I, know, I, I think I've said this before, but do you know that every suffering that we experience, as deep as it is and as real as it is, and I don't mean to make it trite, is only the glancing blow because Christ took the real full force blow on the cross? So when we, hit, when we feel like we've been, this is why Paul can say, I've been struck down but not destroyed. Why? Christ took destruction for us. He says, I'm, I'm perplexed, but I'm not abandoned. Because tr- Christ took abandonment for you and me. This is why Paul could look at all these things and say, I can, I can, I can experience affliction because the main blow of suffering has already been absorbed on the cross of Christ. And so now, God has taken a great enemy, suffering and sin, and turned it into the Christian servant. Because now suffering serves us. It makes us more like Jesus. It used to derail us. It used to destroy us. Now it just chips away that which is fleshly, that which is earthly. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, is that when we look to what God is doing in our lives, we can look to what God has promised to do with hope. So Paul says, now in verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When we look to the eternal things that God has done, you see, that creates thanksgiving, that creates a worship, that creates awe, that creates wonder, that creates humility. 
when we look to the things that God is doing in our lives. Check it out. Whenever you don't feel like God's working, but you're reminded that he even works through the unseen things, it can create patience to trust that even when you don't feel it, he's doing it. How important is that? If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you should say that's very important, isn't it? Ever gotten in your devotion times and not felt it? Like you didn't have Holy Ghost goosebumps? I don't. If you do every single time, the kids are going crazy. If you do every single time, I'm going to give you the face mic so that you can preach. If every time you've ever gotten in your devotion time, all of a sudden you just had a face-to-face with Jesus. It doesn't happen that way. But what can happen is that when it feels dull, you know that God is at work so that it creates patience in your heart to wait upon God. It creates endurance, it creates steadfastness, it creates courage, it creates confidence that even when you feel like you're getting beat down, you know that God is ultimately winning both in your life and in the lives of your loved ones. And then finally, when you think about God finishing the work, you have hope, you have longing, you have expectation. Like friends, I don't think we think enough about what God's doing in the world I don't think we ruminate enough on what God's doing and where he's ultimately leading this thing. And the reason is because what we look at is presently what's happening temporally. And if you just turn on the news, it looks real bad. Or you trust in what God's promised to do. So I want to conclude with this, and it's really just an invitation. There's a quote by a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, which some of you are probably familiar with. He's a philosopher who I think has really shaped a lot of thought for our generation and he was a nihilist. If you don't know what that is, you could just Google it later. Um, but, but he really had a problem with Christianity. And his, the highlight of his problem with Christianity was really one thing, and that was that Christianity encouraged its followers to have hope. Here's what he said. He said, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. He says that the answer for the human being should be finally just to give up and stop expecting good because it's not coming. And when the Christian continues to tell people, don't worry, just hold on, don't worry, just hold on, that that's an evil thing and it's the worst of all evils. So what is he hinting at here? Because I don't think you just write Nietzsche off and say, what an idiot. What is he hinting at? He's hinting at something that you and me both have to face up to, and that is that we experience the difficulties of wanting and desiring good things and them not coming to pass. And that when it happens, Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is that what Paul says here, Christ died and rose again so that we could have hope. See, the resurrection's at the center of the Christian hope because it shows us that even when we're in our bleakest and it seems like it's over, the greatest of all miracles is on the other side. The disciples all ran away from the, from the scene of the cross because they thought it's finally over and it didn't end up like they thought. The, the resurrection on the third day was one of the most miraculous things to ever happen because they watched their Savior die and he not only rose, but he rose in triumph over all of the ones who, the Romans not only killed him, they were guarding the tomb. You think about that? They were guarding the tomb too and they ran away when the stone was rolled away by angels and Jesus stepped out. And Paul says, because Jesus not only rose from the dead but God's in the business of raising the dead, then we have hope against hope. Or let me read to you a couple of texts from Romans. Romans 5, 5 says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
the Holy Spirit is the down payment of what is to come. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust him, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, the Holy Spirit gives hope to the believer as we look to the gospel and we look to Jesus, the resurrected king. And so I want to encourage you this morning to answer the call of Christ. And it brings new meaning when Jesus stood before his disciples and said, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. See, despair is the weary and heavy laden soul that has experienced the fallenness of the world and maybe not a lot of the resurrection. And Jesus looks and says, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. What's the implicit here? The implicit is there's a lot of other offers out there that we could run to. But Proverbs 18.10 says, the man who runs to the name of the Lord is wise because that is a, the, Lord, the name of the Lord is a safe, strong tower. So we run to Jesus because it's in Jesus that we have the offer of life. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Lord, I, I just want to, to lay before you those under the sound of my voice who have hurt, have lost a loved one. Maybe, maybe it's just been a dripping, a, just, a, just a slow deterioration of their hope. They don't believe that their, their marriage is ever going to turn. They don't believe that their relationships with their friends are ever going to be reciprocal. They don't believe that they're ever going to feel your presence again. They don't believe they'll ever be able to shake a habit. They don't believe they'll ever get over the sorrow of losing something or someone. God, for those under the sound of my voice who have that in their hearts constantly, on repeat, over and over again, berating them. In your triumphant, resurrected power, would you stand forth and say, come to me. Lord, would you draw them to yourself because it's in you alone that we have hope of the resurrection. God, I ask for the resurrection in their life to be experienced this morning. Would you help them to hope again? Would you help them to believe again? Holy Spirit, would you visit us? And then God, for those under the sound of my voice who are just not in that season, they have a real joyful season. They've been experiencing maybe more victories than losses. Would you put it on their hearts to not hoard that, but to be sharers of the goodness that they've received from you? Would you put it on their heart to go and minister to others about your grace? And would you help us all, Lord, to live as a body that reflects your glory and your goodness and your love for the world around us, Lord. That's how we can make the gospel unignorable. So do that work, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.